Welcome to the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast. This is a podcast about board games and RPGs, where I have a lot of opinions and conclusions that are formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is proudly sponsored by Amazing Stories Comics. Amazing Stories is the winner of the Joe Schuster Award for the Best Comic Book Store in Canada and is a two-time finalist for an Eisner Award for Best Store Worldwide. The entire staff are true nerds who love pop culture as much as their clients. And Dragon's Den Games, Saskatoon's premier gaming store. Check out the board games, the RPG systems, all the major miniature gaming systems, and a wide selection of gaming and RPG accessories. Check out the website calendar for all of the scheduled gaming nights and events in a large backroom gaming area. Dragon's Den Games, a haven for the imagination. Hey there, I'm your host Norm and this is the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and this is What You've Been Playing Wednesday. And we have been gone for a bit, a little computer issues, but on this episode are definitely a board game podcast. The Rat Hole, Board on the Air, Mozart Games, The Meeple Dungeon, Meeple and the Moose, Dice and Dragons, and Cardboard Conjecture. And as always, please take the time to check out the show notes for the What You've Been Playing Wednesday cast. And it's been a while, so sit back and enjoy. Hello, I am A.A. Ron Millich. And I'm Royce Calverly. And we are... Definitely a board game podcast. A podcast tells you about board games, except when they're not. And we're back on What You Been Playing Wednesday. Royce, what have yeah. you been playing on Wednesday? Well, I played it on Saturday, but close enough. Close enough. <laughs> a day ending with uh, Y. Yeah. <laughs> I played Portents. What now? Portents. Portents. Yeah. So this is by Christopher Chan. Uh, New Mill Industries, 2022. I've talked about New Mill on the show a lot. In fact, we had both Tony and Daniel from New Mill on the show as guests at one point. I have really enjoyed every game that they put out over the last few years. Uh, Their first game was, I believe, Science and Seance Society, which is an amazing two-player game. They followed that up with Rivet Heads, uh, Reaper, the trick-taking game that you really enjoy as well, Uh, Union Station, and now Hortons. Um. Like all their other games, it's a small box game. It's a very small production, although this might be a step up in production for them. Uh, It includes like a 3D cardboard table for the tiles to sit on, as well as cards and all sorts of plastic bits. Really nicely done. This is also their first uh, abstract strategy game. So how this works, you have this little raised platform and you have nine black divining ingredients so think of you're like a fortune teller in a king's court and you're like rolling out the ingredients and this that's the three by three square of these ingredient tiles and all around this three by three square you have omen tokens and the omen tokens are actually like the goal that's what you're trying to achieve so what you're going to be doing you're going to be pushing between one and three of the ingredients off of the table and replacing them with ingredients from your hand. 
And basically the idea is you roll out the ingredients in front of everybody and then you slide a hand to make them match the fortune telling you want to tell to the court, right? Okay. And so if you manage to create a set of ingredients in that three by three grid, then you create a portent. And if the portent matches the omen that's adjacent to it, you collect the omen. When you've collected a certain number of omens, you win the game. So you're going back and forth. It would just be fairly simple if that was all it was. The part that makes it really kind of difficult and interesting is when you finish your turn, if you've created any portents, you have to burn ingredients in those portents. Hmm. So those ingredients now flip over to their burn side and they can't be used in future portents and they can't be pushed off the table until they've been moved out of a portent. And that really adds this incredible level of interaction because you are trying to predict what the other person is going to do on their turn. And by flipping one of these, you can really mess up their whole goal and their whole turn. And you get a lot of (laughs) moments whenever you do that and the other person gets annoyed. I really like that interaction. It's really neat to be able to take away that opportunity And then every now and then you accidentally set them up for like this amazing turn that you didn't even see coming. And they just tick, tick, tick. And you're like, ah, crap. It's really a great abstract strategy game. I don't, I don't play a lot of abstract strategy games. Unfortunately, Grace isn't a huge fan of them. So I don't get to play them very often, but when I do get to play a really good one, I really enjoy it. And this is one of the best I've ever played. I think this is a really, really good uh, game if you just want to sit down two people and have a real hard think while you're playing, this is a game for you. I can picture you playing this with Jeff and Jeff saying his usual trademark. I don't like you, Royce. Yep. yep. <laughs> I can see that too. Yeah. I think Jeff would actually quite like this one. Yeah. I don't know if I would. I have a question for you. What is a portents? I've never heard this word. I've heard of importance. Portent, portent. portent yeah. is um, like a prediction. Oh. Like a, a fortune telling prediction. Hopefully, I'm not the only one that just learned. Maybe not. Uh, prediction isn't quite right. Maybe more like um, an important moment in upcoming history. <laughs> okay. That might be a better way to explain important. Yeah. All right. Well, now I know. Probably should look up a better definition. But that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It never occurred to me. I adapted. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I don't think I excel at games where I got to worry about what other people are doing, too. That's not my thing. I don't know if I would be good at this, but who knows? It sounds interesting. Well, it, it's not so when you have a hundred things to do, worrying about what other people have to do is tough. When you really are only doing one thing on your turn, just pushing one to three tiles, it gives you a lot more time and thought to be able to put to, okay, if I do this, what will happen to this person? Right. Okay. That's fair. <clears throat> All right. Well, I've also been playing games. We had a big board game marathon day on Saturday. Uh, I'm going to talk about Wingspan. And I'm sure... Yeah, everybody I, loves Wingspan. Yeah, everyone loves it. Everyone knows it. It's everywhere. Elizabeth Hargrave, art by Beth Sobel, published by Stegmeier Games. We had Mr. Stegmeier on our podcast. Won the Kennerspiel 2019. So... Just so we're clear, Stonemeyer Games, Jamie Stegmeier. But anyway, yeah, go ahead. Right. That. <laughs> <laughs> Why? The, too many Myers. Anyway, so... Uh... I owned this game, owned, past tense, Uh-oh. and uh, played it a couple of times. And I was just like, I don't get, I must be doing this wrong. And I just said, you know what? 
eh, I'm going to sell it while it's still popular. And I did. I think I got like 45 bucks for it or something crazy. Uh, hold, on, hold, on, hold on. You are not allowed to make fun of Wingspan. We will get letters. We will get emails. Yeah. This is the golden goose here. Yeah. Wingspan, the golden goose. Uh, even the can of goose is in the game. Anyway, played it. Was sure I was not playing it right because I found it way too slow. Uh, and I know it's supposed to be this game where you build up combinations and you machine, was it engine building or whatever, la la la. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I sold it. And then one of our gaming people, she actually bought the game digitally, like on her phone. And uh, I guess she was assuming that we would eventually play our my copy. So she was getting herself ready for it. And I was like, oh, well, uh, I don't own that anymore. And she's like, what? Why? It's such a great game. I love it so much. And I'm like, what am I missing? So it was her birthday. And that's why we met this Saturday. And so I thought, okay, I'll buy her a copy of Wingspan. Sure enough, she opened it up and we played it right there and then. And the good news is I was playing it correctly. And that's also the bad news. Okay. I don't get it. I don't understand why everyone loves this game. It is beautiful, yes. I mean, the cards are cool and stuff, and there's lots of detail and whatever. But man, does it take forever to do anything. It is so slow. Uh, we were talking about Flamecraft in the last episode of What You're Playing Wednesday. That, you're just doing stuff. It, you have to actually... You're doing so much stuff, you have, to want, you have to decide what's the best way to get points. Whereas... Wingspan, if you get to do one thing on a turn, that's exciting. I don't get it. I don't understand uh, how it won so many awards. I, I've played so many great games with you. Uh, and uh, I, when I guess when I compare them, I just, it's, I just find it too slow. The, the art's beautiful. Maybe that's why everyone was drawn to it. Uh, maybe they liked more relaxed, slow style game. You could play on a picnic. I don't know. I just don't like it. The art is absolutely beautiful. And the art, the theme is absolutely why it drew as much attention initially as it did. Look, I'm not the biggest fan of Wingspan. I'd actually don't even own a copy, but I've played it half a dozen times and I've enjoyed all of my plays. Really? And I never really felt it was slow. I, it's, for me at least, it just wasn't wholly original. There wasn't anything in it that I was super excited by. But that doesn't mean it, I didn't think it was a decent game. I'm a little surprised. I would have thought it would be a game that you would really, really enjoy. I don't know. You also have 800 games in your collection or close Which, to, and you don't own a copy. I think that says a lot. Maybe, maybe. What I did really like about it, and I don't know if you had this experience or not. So I was playing along. I was collecting my birds, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden I got a hunting bird. And that was the moment that I suddenly really started to have a lot of fun in my first game because that was the one where you flip a card and if that card is small enough, you get to tuck it under your hunting bird and your hunting bird eats it for a point. And that was just, I love that integration of the theme. The fact that they have the wingspan of the bird on the card and they actually use that wingspan for some of the me mechanisms in the game. I really liked that. That was a lot of fun for me. I just yeah. like the whole activation thing. You got to take a turn to activate something. Come just let it happen right away. It's there. Just, I don't know. I found it too slow. We bought Mariposas, which was kind of the follow-up to Wingspan, and we liked it a lot more. Uh, <laughs> we enjoy it more. So, I, again, I'm sure a lot of people like it. Uh, art is beautiful. I love the dice. I'll, love, I'll play anything with a dice tower. You know me. I'm simple that way. <laughs> uh, 
And I like the dice, I like the quality, I like the components. Just wish it was a little faster and that you could, you know, maybe do two things on a turn or things are activated right away. Anything just to make that game move just a little bit more. It feels like you're bird watching. Which maybe I'll enjoy 20 years from now. I don't know. Okay. All right, well. <laughs> anyway. Uh, the opinions of Aaron do not necessarily <laughs> Anyway, in all fairness, it wasn't a massive hit for me either, although I didn't dislike it like you did. So that's interesting. No, I should say I did tell Bonnie I'd play it again. And I I guess maybe that is something. The replayability in the birds you get is something that would make you want to play it again. And maybe I was just getting rotten birds. I don't know. But I would just love for it to move a little bit quicker. Anyway, so if you want to hear more good stuff or rants, you should come. I didn't rent this time. I, I did. Time. I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> come check us out on Definitely Board Game Podcast. We're streaming everywhere podcasts live. If you want to reach out to me, let me know how much you hated my comments today about Wingspan. Board at gmail.com, at BoardDefinitely on Twitter and Facebook. Right? I definitely Bored on Facebook. Definitely Bored on Facebook, at BoardDefinitely on Twitter. Yeah. Where Royce is certified. Yes. <laughs> I was offered a check mark. Oh, oh yeah. You were offered to be certified. <laughs> I can buy a latte. <laughs> Anything else before we go, Royce? Nope. I have nothing. Awesome. Say goodbye, Royce. Goodbye, Royce. What's up, Internet? My name's Paparazzo Dave Chapman. I'm the lead reviewer for the Rathole.ca, a co-host on The Legend of the Traveling Tardis, and I'm back on What You've Been Playing Wednesday. It's Valentine's Day, and your much-anticipated date has met with an unexpected hiccup. Can you solve the mystery and salvage your date night? Without spoiling it, that's basically the start of The Cupid Crisis, an escape room-style card game from Grand Gamers Guild. From there, the mystery unfolds bit by bit, card by card, and the only advice I'm going to give you is that you should take the time to look at the info section of the game's app page before you start. This section provides information that the average person may or may not know that may or may not be helpful for them to know. That simple knowledge base may be enough to avoid needing a bunch of score-impacting hints. I'm not particularly good at puzzle games, That makes the whole escape room genre of games particularly frustrating for me. Over on the rathole.ca, I've reviewed the Kringle Caper and the Pumpkin Problem entries to the Holiday Hijinks series, and they were both pretty challenging. The publisher, Grant Gamers Guild, rates both of those as a 2 out of 3 difficulty. The Cupid Caper rates a 3 out of 3 difficulty, with all three allegedly taking about 60 minutes to solve for most groups. Now, earlier this week... I made the moderately embarrassing mistake of trying to stream my Solving the Case on our YouTube channel and our new Twitch channel. Uh, I was kind of tired, so after roughly 50 minutes, I was probably only half to two-thirds complete. Uh, That time included using way too many hints and several I-give-up-what's-the-answer prompts. Uh, So take that for what you will. The aforementioned app page is what gives you hints if you need them and generally guides you through the game. When you think you have the right answer, you just enter it into the site, if it's correct, 
you'll be instructed what to do next. Uh, the one thing I encountered that I didn't love with this specific game is that there was a point where, as best as I could tell, the trail was done. It just ended abruptly, and I need to start down a different path without really being explicitly told to. But I stopped streaming shortly after that point, so I may actually be completely out to lunch. Even though I have huge problems solving problems, I honestly love the Holiday Hijinks series. One of the reasons beyond just the challenge is the small format. It's easy to bring along somewhere, it's easy to play just about anywhere, and whether you play the physical version, which is what I prefer, or the print and play edition, which is what I did for the Kringle Caper, you'll have an amazing experience. It's only 18 cards and then access to the website. Because I have such faith in the print and play version, I play and post the holiday hijinks reviews with way less lead time than I might otherwise. Uh, so you can go right now, print the game, be ready to play in no time. Play with yourself, with a date, with a group of friends. Either way, this is a superb way to spend at least part of your now post Valentine's Day. You can find Grand Gamers Guild online at grandgamersguild.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash grandgamersguild. Here at therathole.ca, we put out primarily written content with occasional video reviews and interviews, as well as a weekly miniature painting series, Slinging Paint. You can find our YouTube and all of our social media at linktree, that's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash therathole.ca. Thank you for listening, and until next time, good gaming, and goodbye. Gamers, I'm Jason of Dyson Dragons, and today I'm going to be talking about Fuse Countdown by Renegade Game Studios, designed by Kane Klenko. Now, this is a real-time cooperative game for one to four players and plays in 10 minutes. That's right, just 10 minutes. It's very easy to set up. It's just a deck of cards that you're going to be shuffling. You got to take out some dice and pick a role that you'll be playing as. Now. The story for this game is that you're aboard a ship and once again someone is trying to blow it up. There are bombs planted all over the ship and there's a 10 minute countdown to when they will all go off destroying the ship. You as a player need to defuse all the bombs on the ship in order to save it and also save your own skins. Now each uh, different character has their own special abilities. There's a lot of variety there, so there's some asymmetry, but you're not going to necessarily be wanting to use it every turn. It all depends on your roll, because in order to defuse the bombs, you're going to be rolling dice, you're pulling them out of a dice bag, and then you need to match the numbers, colors, or even potentially the split dice, which counts as two different colors as well as numbers, to different uh, cards in order to defuse the bombs. So, what did I think of this game? Well, I really enjoyed it. I have to say the game is a lot harder than you would think. Uh, Jewel and I played it on uh, the training mode and the standard mode, and we definitely did not win very often. Uh, depending on the personalities that are going to be playing the game, there could definitely be some butting of heads at the table. And it did seem to be fairly, uh, a little bit more complicated when you're playing with two players versus playing with potentially four players. One of the reasons is that at two players, you need to assign a minimum of two dice, which can be tricky depending on the cards that you have. Whereas when you're playing with four players, you need to assign only one die and you've got a bigger pool of cards that uh, can take the dice. Now there might be some contention going back and forth as to what is the best strategy and who should take what, but it definitely flows very well. 
Well, we and the reason why I say that, even though only playing at two players, is because Julie and I definitely did struggle at times to place our dice, and that's really what puts you behind. When you can't place the dice, it stays out, meaning you don't get a chance to re-roll it to get a new number for it, and you have to draw a spark card. Spark cards are hindrances, and you cannot win the game if you have any sparks remaining active during your play. Now, how you win is defusing all the bombs. Any cards that are pulled in front of you that you're working on defusing will not count, so you have to clean the clear the deck, as well as clear all of the different Sparks cards. Now, we will be having a review of this coming out uh, the day after this segment is released, or the same day, not quite sure when it's actually going to be releasing. But there's really not much more to, to add. This is going to be a shorter segment. It's a fun, real-time game. The fact that it plays in 10 minutes and it's easy to set up. If you like cooperative games, I think that pretty much every gamer will have a space on the shelf uh, for this, especially if you do host game nights or bring this game the game nights the 10 minutes really works well when you're waiting for other people to show up and the teamwork and depth of play is there and it's uh, it's surprising it's not something that i really expected from the game so suffice to say this is one that we enjoy and you should definitely check out our review on that note i remind you to keep playing games Hello, everybody. It's Rob and Anna-Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are back again recording for the What You've Been Playing Wednesdays podcast, and we have one game to talk about this week. What game is that, Anna-Marie? That game is Marvel Zombies, a zombicide game uh, designed by Fabio Curry and Michael Chenal, art by Marco Cicchetto and Henning Ludwigsen, and published by Come On or Simon. And I think there are a couple more. Spin Master. Spin Master, yeah. I yeah. knew there was another one. Mar- well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Simon and Spin Masters are the, are the main two there. Um, but yeah. Uh, guillotine. That's the other one. What was it? Guillotine Games. Oh, Guillotine. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Marvel Zombies. This is the new big Kickstarter that has arrived uh, at our house. Well, we've had it for about a month or whatever. And uh, yeah, it's a fun one where it's it's based off all the Zombicide um, games like the same sort of structure to that uh, that kind of game uh, where you're going to have scenarios set up and and uh, you're gonna have your own little player board and your characters and you're gonna pick from there's six characters that you can yep. pick from um, and those are zombified uh, versions of Captain Marvel Captain America Hulk Deadpool, Iron Man, and the Wasp. Yes. And you can, yeah, you can play as these characters, as zombies, and you're... I'm impressed that you listed them off like that quickly. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I would have got stuck. We've only played with four of them, Deadpool and Hulk and Wasp and... Iron Man. Iron Man. And we've been playing through all the different scenarios. There's 12 or so scenarios in in the core box of this game, and you're, you're playing through, you build, you put together the, uh, the actual map with these big tiles and it takes up a huge just, amount yeah, of city blocks yeah, kind of these big city blocks and they're double-sided tiles so there's all these different map situations you can put together and there's different objectives you need to take in these uh in, in these scenarios from having to eat a certain person to trying to uh find an object and escape through a certain area and it's kind of funny because the people and it's neat how they do it the people that you have to eat are bystanders and they're mm-hmm. people that you know so You've got yeah, like oh yeah. Jane Jonah Jameson and yeah. Pepper Potts and Mary yeah, Jane. So great. <laughs> and all the while, so the way it kind of works is on your turn, you're going to have a few actions you can do where you can eat various people, you can attack them, you can move around the, the city, 
Uh, you can interact with objects, things like this. And then once your turns are over, there's going to be like the enemy turn, which is actually like the people, the real people. And yeah. they're going to uh, move towards you and try to attack you. And then there's going to be different spawn points all over the map where new characters are going to, or new um, like troops and, and so forth, yeah. they're going to spawn there. Uh, with a, a deck that you're flipping cards over to tell you who to spawn and where, and including superheroes that can yes. spawn. And these are it's like, funny having superheroes and police as like your enemies here. Yeah, so you can face who could you face there? Thor can show up, Spider Man, Miss Marvel, Miss Marvel, yeah. Scarlet Witch, and Doctor Strange. Yeah, and there's somebody else, Black Panther. Yeah, and um, I got yeah, fire the, with those tonight. Yeah, well done. It uh, it's a crazy game. It's it's difficult. Um, <laughs> it's, it's understatement. Uh, it's good though. Like, it is we've good. really been enjoying yeah. it. Um, and we don't want to give too much away about it because we just recorded our full blown review for it over on the Meeple Dungeon podcast. I think episode fifty six. Yes. Um, so I think that's about all we're going to talk about Marvel Zombies. So if you want to hear more about it, head on over to. Um, Podbean to our our uh, our podcast or any of the major podcasting <laughs> yeah, all sites. the major, po- major <laughs> podcasting sites will have it but yeah you can find out what we think about it over there um so i think that's it for this week so we're gonna run and we'll see you in two weeks because we're doing this every two weeks now um so we'll see you then cheers see ya Hi, I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And this is Born on the Air, a weekly radio show in Saskatoon, and this is What Have You Been Playing? On tonight's show, we are going to talk about... Clank Legacy Acquisitions Incorporated. We will try to spoil nothing. We apologize if something slips out, but this is your warning. That we're trying not to, but if we do, we apologize. And we're probably going to be about seven minutes, so... Yeah, right around there. Uh, in Clank Legacy Acquisitions Incorporated, you are playing Clank. Uh, you are mercenaries. You're you're getting hired to a big company, and you're trying to make your name. Yeah, you're you're adventurers going into the underground, getting relics, bringing them back to your building. You're going to do that over multiple games, and at the end, somebody is going to be declared the winner based on. A bunch of different things. Yeah. Uh, this is my favorite legacy game I've ever played. Yeah, it's it was a blast playing through yeah. it. I, I thought the story was well written. I thought there was good humor. I thought <laughs> it... There was a lot of motivating factors, and it allowed you to play Clank with a little, I would say, semi-cooperative aspect to it. Yes. You you were harmed when someone wouldn't score any points. Yeah. So it, it motivated you to at least let everyone score. Yeah. It, it didn't benefit you to just run in, get something, run out, and then kill everybody else in your party off. Yeah. Uh, not if you wanted to see the full story. Yeah. If you wanted to get all the good ending stuff, you needed to keep everyone alive. Yes. Uh, like all legacy games, you are modifying the game. Uh, you're cha- putting stickers on the board, you're ripping up cards, you're getting rid of cubes, you're adding cubes. Uh, you're but changing the board. At the end of it, you have a clank game that is your own, mm-hmm. and you can keep playing it. Yeah. You, 
there's two sides of the board. One side is mostly built already. The other side is half built. Like you choose how that board really gets built based to, on your to app. a point. Yeah, there's a, a few general brushes that the game has set in stone, but you really get a lot of choice. Yeah, you're choosing a lot of the benefits that are on the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Duran said, there's an overworld and an underworld, two sides of the map. Uh, you discover that within a couple of games. Uh, that is a semi-spoiler. When you open up the game, you're going to see it, so not really. Yeah. Uh, the deck is, I would say, ever-changing. Uh, you're always adding cards. You're always taking cards out. Uh, so there's some good variability there. Yeah. Uh, Everyone has their starting deck, yeah. which at one point will change slightly. Yeah, you're going to get some modifications to your starting deck. Uh, there's some cards you're going to start with. Uh, that you don't you normally start with in other games. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some spaces on the board that are a little different than other Clanks that I have played. Uh, that being said, I've never played original Clank. I've only played Clank in Space and Clank Catacombs. Uh, other than that, the game is Clank. Yet, shockingly, he's only died once in this one. Yeah, I, I die a lot in Clank in Space. This one, I stayed alive other than one game where we all got destroyed. Yes. I think I died the most. Yes, you did. Surprisingly. Because usually I don't die the most. Yeah. Uh, the, I, I, would, I loved playing through this campaign. I definitely would play the board again. But it's also... When do you... F- when do you bring that one out compared to like a catacombs or the clank in spaces? Yeah, that is the question I'm sort of asking myself now. We've played the legacy version. Is it going to be something I want to pull out? I, in my mind, I think I do because I like clank a lot. I do like clank in space. Uh, I, there's probably one side of the board I like better than the other. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it as to which one. Yeah. Uh, but there is. There is some variability of the setup and how you play this one post-Legacy that uh, ha- has me intrigued. Yeah, and it has its own niche because with Clank and Space, it's modular, similar to Catacombs, but less wild. Catacombs is a much quicker one and very random of what you're going to encounter in it. Yeah. Whereas this one is... You know what the board's going to be like every time you come into it. It's just a little modification with cards. Yeah, and they said uh, if there was any story elements left, those would continue on into your regular game, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, There's also the player, the character expansions you can get for it. Yeah, there's the three or four packs of adventuring parties that you can play that give you some asymmetry. Uh, I've never played with any of them. Uh, I'm curious. They're not that expensive, so I may pick those up at some point because they do say you can use them with some of the other clanks as well. Yep. Uh, I've always... uh, I've tossed back and forth whether I'm going to get regular clanks still. Uh, I don't think we would need a fourth clank. I don't think we need it, but the collector in me thinks we do. (laughs) FOMO. (laughs) Yeah. All, All in all, this was a solid game. Uh, if you don't like Clank, you are not going to like this. 
Yeah. Uh, it doesn't change the formula too much. It's yeah. Clank through and through. If you do like Clank, I think you'll love this game. Uh, or if you really like Clank, you'll love this game. Uh, yeah. It's solid. As I say, the writing and everything is top-notch in this one. And it still has the, oh my god, I'm about to die half the time in it. Yeah, there, there's still that, I am getting hit a lot. Uh, how do I get out of here and survive and keep my goods? Yeah, or the, I'm at seven health taken and everyone else is at one. Bye, I'm sorry, but I'm about to die. <laughs> yeah, I have to get the heck out of here. Okay, I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we will talk to you next week. Hello, my name is Alex, and I write board game reviews over at MeepleInTheMoose.com, and I'm here to talk to you today about the games I played this week for what you've been playing Wednesday. I don't own many training games. I never considered myself to be the kind of person who is enamored with large vehicles like tanks or ships or trains. But then in 2020, I discovered a video game called Train Valley 2, and suddenly I was hooked. 200 hours of gameplay later, I had 5 starred every level, and my partner was making fun of my midlife love of Train Awakening. Now when I see trains, which to be fair is incredibly frequent due to the fact that I live on an island with no functioning rail system, I, I can't deny I feel an excitement in my chest. With that excitement in my chest, I find myself staring longingly at board games that feature gorgeous trains on the cover. Ultimate Railroads, Age of Steam, and the Iron Rail series just to name a few. So when Switch and Signal popped up for sale, I just couldn't say no. After all, I barely own any train games. Switch and Signal is a cooperative game from David Thompson and published by Cosmos. In Switch and Signal, you are tasked with quarreling speeding trains from their points of origin to cities to collect goods, then to the port city to deliver that good. The board contains four different cities, each producing two goods of the associated color, and 11 points around the board in which a train might spawn from. Players win if they can deliver all the goods to the port, but lose if you run out of departure cards. Switch and Signal starts with 8 signal disks and 26 switch disks on the board. At least one signal disc must be on each city at all times, leaving you with four extra signal discs to deploy as you wish. The switch discs mark which direction a train will move in any junction. All nine trains start in the depot on the side of the board at the start of the game and will be deployed as the game wears on. Players are dealt five action cards, of which there are three different kinds, signal setting, switch setting, and train movement. A turn always starts with, the, with a departure card being drawn, which will either spawn a train and or move all the trains of a color on the board. The location in which a train spawns is dependent on the deployment dice, two little cubes that will just ruin your day. You roll those two dice and place the train on the location matching the sum of those dice. Train movement is similar in that it's controlled by a cube that just hates your guts. You roll the same colored die for each train on the board and move that train that number of spaces. A train can only move through a signal location if the signal is green. And if a train re reaches a junction, it must move through the open route. Should your train run into a red light, you lose time tokens. If your train runs into, no into another train's rear, you lose time tokens. If two trains collide head on, you lose time tokens and the moving train is removed from the map. If you can't deploy a train because a train already exists in that location, you lose time tokens. So I just talked a bunch about time tokens, but what are those? At the start of the game, you get seven time tokens to place on the board. If you ever run out, you discard one of the departure cards back to the box, and then you refill your time token supply. Remember, if you run out of, if you run out of departure cards, you lose the game. 
Anyways, with train deployment out of the way, you're finally able to take your turn. Playing a signal setting card allows you to move a single green disc, opening a new path for trains to travel while closing the path left behind. Similarly, playing a switch setting card allows you to move a single switch disc, changing the direction a train would travel through when it reaches that junction. The train movement card allows you to pick a single train and roll its dice, moving along the track. You can also discard two cards to do any of those three actions of your choice. When you're done, draw five cards and the next player can take their turn, starting with the drawing and resolving of the departure card. Play just continues until you win or lose. Switch and signal starts slow. With only three trains on the board, one of each color, and no movement on turn one, you can almost hear the gears of the system creak and groan as the game slowly inches forward to leave the station. Players are tasked with picking up goods from the hub cities and delivering them to the port. It's pretty easy to get that first train to the city by just adjusting the signals and switches as necessary. By the third or fourth turn, things have started to become a bit dramatic. A few more trains have spawned, perhaps a pair of trains have moved somewhat unexpectedly, and while your primary goal may still be to deliver that first good you picked up, a bottleneck is starting to develop. Two trains might be approaching the same junction from different directions and you just don't have enough signals to allow everything to move. The engine has built up speed now. Plans will get changed, losses will get cut. You will deliver empty trains to the port just to get them off the board. You'll risk collisions hoping that one train only moves one or two spaces so that it comes to rest just behind a train that's waiting for a signal to change before it can move into a city. You'll juggle switches and signals closing past the moment a train crosses the threshold because the, the, that signal resource is required elsewhere. Everything is moving too fast now and you'll desperately lean on the brakes lest everything crashes into a spectacularly horrible fashion. Just as the bottlenecks get cleared and the trains start to flow down a single track, the game will approach its end. The departure deck will be nearly empty and you'll need to step on the gas to t and take risks to get your trains delivered in time. Maybe that train you delivered empty in round 5 when you had too much on your plate means that you just actually won't have enough trains to deliver all the goods. Maybe if you had rolled a 10 instead of a 4 when deploying that final train, it would have been on the right side of the board and you could have secured your victory. Alas, that's the game. Cooperative games have some unique challenges to overcome, like how to avoid being a perfectly solvable puzzle while not being totally and completely random, how to balance those long-term projects against the short-term goals, how to give players agency when their friends are bossing them around. I feel like Switch and Signal does a pretty good job in offering competing objectives. It's tempting to direct an empty train to the port city instead of having it cross the entire country getting in everyone else's way to get to a good city and then all the way back again. But when unexpected things happen, like a train failing to deploy because you left a single train on in a station somewhere, you'll be glad you have a backup plan. Unless, of course, that backup plan is a black train barreling down the tracks faster than you can keep up, and now it's on a collision course with that plodding grey train. Switching signal isn't complex or difficult. After a handful of plays, you'll know the basic strategies that should lead you to victory. If you happen to find yourself in a good position early in the game, then it behooves you to pass early and take car extra cards into your hand. Once your hand is full of 10 cards, you can pretty much always be able to do anything you want to. With only 3 card types, the odds are that you'll actually have at least 2 of each action. And if you have a surplus of one type of action, like I had 7 green cards in my hand at one point, you can discard 2 cards to actually do whatever you want. I appreciate the flexibility, but once your hand is full of cards, the game is just mitigating luck. Switch and Signal includes two maps to switch up your gameplay experience, but the level of discovery in this game is really low. I do like that you can randomize a station so that you don't always have trains flowing in from the north, or if you just hate deployment dice, you can use cardboard chits to randomize the train deployments. The bare game is the same every single time. 
I would love to see some expansions for Switch and Signal just to shake up the experience a bit. I've mostly played Switch and Signal solo, which has been a very enjoyable experience. It's fast to play and the tensions I feel mid-game when I'm quarreling seven, several trains simultaneously is actually exciting. There's a lot of luck as all the train deployments and movements are decided by dice. Like, if only my grey dice rolls anything other than a 3 this round, or deploy the black train to anything higher than a 4, then rolling a 2 can leave you a bit disheartened. But overcoming these calculated risks is what makes the game fun. Including other players doesn't change the game at all, other than each player has their own hand of cards. Overall, Switch and Signal is a fast, fun, and easy to play cooperative game with some lovely, lovely little train toys to play with. I like lighthearted games that give me a lot of space to just laugh and have fun with my friends. There's a lot of luck, there's a lot of flexibility, there's not a lot of variability. Switch and Signal is a great game to use to introduce others to the wonderful world of cooperative games or to lull them into a false sense of security and thinking train-themed games are light and breezy and then you suggest playing a cutthroat game like Age of Steam. And that's all I played this week. If you want to read more of my board game reviews, you can find them over on my blog, meepleinthemoose.com, and have a happy Wednesday. Everybody, this is Chris Morris from Mozart Games, and I am thrilled to be back again on What You've Been Playing Wednesday this week. If you want to give me a follow on Twitter, you can find me on there as SpiderMo. That's Spider with a Y. I'll often post pics of games that I've been playing, some of my ongoing challenges as a designer, and just a few rants and raves along the way. On this week's episode, I want to discuss a relatively new game that didn't get much fanfare from what I've seen. It's called Astra from Mind Clash Games, and a trio of designers who, out of respect, I don't want to try to pronounce their names for fear of butchering them. Mind Clash Games is known for some pretty heavy designs, such as Anachrony, Dracurion, and Cerebria. But Astra is a new game in their Mind Clash playline, which appears to be much lighter fare, judging by this game. In Astra, players are working and competing with one another to discover various constellations in the game, using their stardust to mark stars with dry erase markers on the cards themselves. There will always be one more constellation in play than there are players, so it scales quite well to various player counts. On your turn, you can take one of two types of actions, observe or rest. Players will rest throughout the game in order to gain Stardust and potentially refresh their constellations that they've used previously for their abilities in earlier rounds. It's a very fast action, and it's crucial to gain more Stardust, but it also speeds up the endgame, as every fourth rest action that all players do will burn a card from the top of the draw deck, and when that deck reaches a certain point, the game end will trigger. Now, during an observe action, players will use their stardust in their pouch to mark stars on the various constellations in play. If there's no stars that are marked yet on a constellation, you must mark one in particular star first, and then each star that you mark after that must be adjacent to one that you've previously marked that round. Players can mark any number of stars on their turn, from one to as many as they have stardust in their supply. And once a constellation has every star marked off of it by all the players, it's said to be discovered, and the players who marked the, the sorry the player that marked the final star will take it into their personal collection. However, every other player will gain a boon listed on the card, with those players who marked the most stars getting first pick. Boons are a huge part of the game 
as they give players lots of bonuses, like additional Stardust, Telescope Tokens, increasing their Wisdom or Pouch size, which gives them the ability to collect more Constellations or Stardust respectively, or just plain straight-up victory points. Each of these are extremely beneficial, and it's often desired to not actually finish a Constellation and instead just gain boons. However, players do need to discover Constellations to do well, and each one that they discover will net them a special ability that, they, that can really help them create a strong engine later in the game. The beginning of the game is slow going as players have limited Stardust available to them, and we found that players didn't want to finish Constellations early to give their opponents valuable boons. However, as the game continues on, it really ramps up nicely, with players gaining huge bonuses that allow for some deeper strategy. Various stars on the constellations are marked as Grand Stars, and when a player fills them, they'll gain additional wisdom. You can usually only mark off stars from a single constellation, but if you've collected any telescope tokens, you can take additional actions marking off more constellations on your turn, or also marking off the same constellation twice, which can be necessary as players tend to isolate stars, and you can usually only mark off ones that are adjacent to one another on your turn. The various abilities on the constellations, once you discovered them, are also really cool, and allow players to combo things together to mark off extra stars for free, gain telescope tokens, or a whole bunch of other unique abilities. It was hard to keep track of what everyone else had available to them, but once a constellation is used, it's unavailable to be used again by a player until they rest at the right time to reactivate some of their constellations. When the game ends, players will gain victory points for their unused constellations, and there's also a set collection aspect that scores as each constellation belongs to one of the four basic elements, fire, air, water, or earth. Players will also score points based on their accumulated wisdom, stardust pouch size, as well as any unused stardust and marked stars on undiscovered constellations. In our game, we all went down different paths, and the scores varied widely based on our success or lack thereof with our individual plans. It played fairly quickly, about 45 minutes or so, and everyone had a great time during the game and was talking about it during the rest of our game night. We did find that the dry erase markers were a little hard to tell apart, as both the green and blue markers were very dark and looked similar to the black one. The pink and orange ones were also somewhat similar, but we managed to mark our stars uniquely enough that we didn't have too hard a time checking to see who had marked off each star when it came time to collect our boons. I've also heard that the green marker is hard to remove, but I sleeved my cards ahead of time to prevent this being an issue. Astra is definitely a game that I want to play again soon, and I think it plays well with three or four players. Five might have a little bit too much downtime, but with experienced players, this shouldn't be too bad either. There's a two-player variant that uses a third marker to keep things tight, but I haven't had a chance to try that yet. It's a reasonably priced game with a very cool theme and lots of replayability. So if you have a chance to pick it up somewhere, you might just want to give it a shot if you like lighter games where players can discuss things at the table while the game is being played. I do hope that Mind Clash continues along this line of games to provide players with something a little bit more accessible than their usual heavy game lines. Once again, I'm Chris Morris. Thank you so much for listening to my thoughts about Astra from Mind Clash Games, and may all your dice rolls be critical successes.
Hey everybody, Norm here from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast. And uh, you know what you've been playing me? I haven't been playing anything because I've been fixing my computer. And that's why we, uh, we missed a episode drop last time. And, uh, but it's up and going again. And I haven't really played much. I've played Brass Birmingham, but I'm not really ready to talk to, to you about that yet because we're going to play it again because it's my pick in the Gamer's Garage. And uh, uh, it's, yeah, it's one of those games where I just, I have to figure it out. <laughs> I love it. Um, so yeah, when I'm ready to talk about Brass Birmingham, you get ready. Uh, that being said, I'm glad the computer's working. I'm glad there's still people who uh, are interested in what we, uh, things we have to say about uh, the games we've been playing, hopefully to entice you to purchase some, and uh, not saying that Brass Birmingham isn't number one on BGG right now. You gotta go get it. <laughs> um, but yes, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for the content creators who are always uh, contributing and uh, making this such a really cool uh, special express weekly episode, whatever you want to call it, uh, side salad extravaganza. Uh, I don't know if I can use any more adjectives. Uh, here, give me five minutes. No, I'm joking. Um, thank you, everybody. And uh, of course, we can't finish off without saying, keep your stick on the ice and take care out there, eh?